1 John chapter 4, verse 19 is where we'll begin our reading and finish out the chapter, verses 20 and 21 as well. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Just three verses tonight, mainly as far as our text. We want to, again, uh, look into the entirety of the teaching here, that we might have an understanding of the context in which we are looking at this evening. But as I have mentioned previously to you, there is not, and this is, this is important, and I, I've, just in the last week or two, I was talking to a young man about this today. I saw him and we were discussing things, and um, something had mentioned that I brought this up, and, and I find this to be so encouraging. Even last week when I was teaching through, or not, yeah, last week when I was teaching through this, uh, I find this to be exceptionally encouraging. I don't know if you really picked up on the significance of this or not, and I've mentioned it the last few weeks, but specifically last week, I just, when I was thinking through this as I'm, as I'm proclaiming it, there was literally just a joy within me of this truth that, that I was sitting here contemplating and meditating the truth myself as I'm proclaiming it to you. And the fact of the matter is that there is not one single test that proves our fellowship with God, but in this epistle, John provides a collective group of tests. It's a culmination of tests which therefore provide irrefutable evidence of one's relationship and fellowship with the Lord. And again, let me explain why this is so important. People will ask questions, and, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say to you, but you need to understand this truth. People will make statements such as this, like, well, I, you know you're saved? Yes, I know I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? Well, I know I'm saved because I asked Jesus into my heart one day. That is not evidence of salvation or proof according to Scripture whatsoever. Or people will say, well, I've been in church all my life. That is absolutely no evidence. I've been involved in ministry. That is not evidence. Or they say, well, I asked Jesus in my heart, and then I felt so much better afterwards. That is not evidence in and of itself. And so what's so interesting and so, so wonderful in what John is showing us here, as we who are believers, is that it, it is not one singular test or evidence or proof. There is a culmination of tests which are therefore the evidence or proof of one's authentic fellowship and relationship with God. And that is so important because we see that it's not one single matter, but it is all of this together that is the ongoing evidence in one's life. Because here's the bottom line. And that's why people make statements such as this. It's a gross misunderstanding of salvation as a whole, but people make statements like this, or they question, when I asked Jesus to save me, was I really serious? You've heard people make comments like that. And they're doubting, did I really mean it? Look, that is not the evidence of salvation. And I'm glad it's not. It's not about how I feel. It's not about how I think at one moment. It's not, and thank God it's not based upon whether or not we remain completely, totally faithful to God. Because obviously we fail in that, don't we? But there's still a pursuit and hunger after righteousness and after truth. And we still cherish and value what God cherishes and values. And we still love those whom God loves. And we still love God because he's loved us, as John says here in this text. And so the whole point being this, that there is a collective group of these tests that are the evidence and the proof that we are the children of God. And John's going to more clearly substantiate that and establish that in chapter 5. We're going to see that even more so really spelled out. We're not there yet. We'll be there, Lord willing, next week, but we're not there yet. 
And so he's going to make this very clear for us in chapter 5. And so it's important that we recognize this. And again, this, this, this brings great joy to me because we can look at our lives and look at the, t- the evidences that are present since the moment we did receive Christ, since we were born again. And once we've done, once we look back to those moments or that moment and through time we see the evidences that are proclaimed by John to be factual, that these are genuine and these are true within our lives. Last week, we considered perfect love as declared by John within this epistle. And John declares that God's love is perfected within, and he mentions several things here. He says God's love is perfected in those who keep, and that means, of course, those who value and cherish God's word. In 1 John 2, 3 through 5, he says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, and him verily is the love of God perfected, Hereby know we that we are in him. And again, the word keepeth here doesn't mean we live by the law, but rather it's saying that we keep, we cherish, we value, we protect or guard because we cherish and, cherish and value that which God has declared. Second, those who love one another, fellow believers. First John 4, 12 and 13. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. Then those who are bold in the face of judgment, 1 John 4, 17, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And those who delivered uh, from fear and its torment, in 1 John 4, 18, it says, uh, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So those who are delivered from fear and its torment as well, this love is perfected in them. It's been perfected or is being perfected. And so perfect in this context, it means complete and finished. So we have God's love. It's been perfected in us and that it is a complete work of redemption. Not that we have experienced redemption complete yet, but the work of redemption is accomplished through Christ. And that is our confidence. That is where we rest. That is what we hope in and we trust in. And so John is stating that it is in our maturity and God's love as we trust totally in his provision and expression of his love in Jesus Christ. That we have boldness. We have confidence in the day of judgment. John further explains why this confidence exists. Let me throw this, or let, me, let, me, let me explain this while I'm here for a moment, interrupt this for just a moment. In the day of judgment. So, in other words, even at moments where I fail to rest in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer in Christ, there's moments, of course, that I'm not resting as I should be within his, God's provision of Christ as the sufficient Savior and Redeemer. And in those moments where I may not be resting, meaning, what I mean by that is I'm distracted from Him, is what I'm talking about. In the day of judgment, when I stand before God, I'm absolutely, totally resting in the sufficiency of God's provision of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm to be doing that now. But do we always faithfully do that? No, we fail, do we not? But in the day of judgment, guess what? There, even if someone today... Is, is, is fearful because of an ignorance or misunderstanding of God's truth, if they are genuinely born again, they will stand before God in perfect peace of God, with God, because of the sufficiency of God's provision in Jesus Christ. John further explains why this confidence exists. Notice what he says. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So now we're talking about a present confidence, of course. And I, I showed you this last week, but as Christ is righteous, so we are righteous in him. As Christ is holy so are we holy in Him. As Christ is loved to the Father, so are we loved in Him. As Christ is accepted by the Father, so are we made accepted in the beloved, in Him. 
as Christ is pleasing to the Father, so are we pleasing to the Father in Him. So as I explained in our previous study, our confidence is not in a claim that we make. It's not in an emotional experience that we have had. It is not in how well we have performed since making a profession. Our confidence is absolutely, totally in the work, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, which continues to transform us on a daily basis. Now let's look at verse 18. There is no fear of love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. So as we've seen, those who fear God's judgment do not have confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. And again, we have to understand, confidence and arrogance are not the same thing here. Confidence does not equate to arrogance. We're not talking about being arrogant. We're talking about being bold because we are confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of our confidence in Him, we have boldness in Him. We know that God is satisfied in His Son. We know that. And so we stand confidently before the Father, even in judgment, because Christ is our high priest. Christ is the atonement that's been made on our behalf. So as we progress in our study, we discover that John, in the following verses of this text, provides both the source and the continued evidence of love of this love of which he wrote. Such a love that is powerful enough. Now consider what John has just said. Perfect love casteth out fear. Didn't he not say that? And this perfected love is within those who love the brother and those who love God's truth. Are you seeing the evidences here? This is how, where God's love is perfected and the evidence of perfected love. And so those who are resting in Christ no longer have a judgment of the, or, I mean, have fear of the judgment uh, that awaits. Now, our judgment is different than the world's, obviously. Hence, we do not fear as the world would fear, as the unbeliever would. And so we understand then that this love that is, if it's powerful enough to eradicate the fear of judgment from one's life, then it must have a basis. If this love is powerful enough to eradicate the the fear of judgment in one's life, then this love must have a basis which can substantiate such a claim of its ability to eradicate the fear of judgment. Because remember something, all men, If there is a universal fear among men, it is that of death. Now, a believer does not fear as an unbeliever. That's true. But I don't know anyone who is actually looking forward to death in the sense of embracing the thought of death. Now, God will give grace in those moments, and God will, of course, provide uh, uh, peace and, and comfort in those moments for those who are resting in Him. There's no question about that. But God has built us, physically speaking, with a thing called self preservation. And we are wanting to self-preserve, and that's how God has created us to be. He's made us that way. So in that regard, it's not as though we're saying, oh, yeah, I just can't wait till I die. <laughs> you know. Now, we may be looking forward to eternity and that which is beyond death, but what man is actually saying, I just, I'm, I'm just looking so forward to the process of dying? I mean, that's just such an odd, strange thing. Because we don't think that way because we're not geared to think that way. And so if there is a love which is perfected in us, which is, has the ability and capability and the power to eradicate entirely the fear of judgment, then there must be a basis for this love to substantiate that claim. And within verse 17, we see John provides the basis for such a claim, that this love can eradicate the fear of judgment from one's life. From one's life. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, 
because as he is, so are we in this world. So in the latter portion of this verse, John explains again that the power of this love to remove all fear of judgment is dependent upon its transforming power. For as he, Jesus, is, so are we in this world. So this is not simply John's declaration that we will one day be as Jesus is within a glorified body that is sinless, but that we are presently as Jesus is in this regard, positionally. While we understand that we are not in a glorified and sinless body at this present time, obviously, we also must understand and embrace the biblical teaching that we are positionally in Jesus, which means that God the Father views us in His Son. Which is to say that God the Father views us in the same manner He views His Son. Because as He is, so are we in this world. So as I live, this doesn't just mean one day I will be sinless. It doesn't just mean one day I will be glorified, though all this is true. What it's saying, what John is teaching is, that we do not fear judgment because we understand that God sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at us. That God sees the holiness of Jesus. That God sees his pleasure in his son when he looks at us. Are you following? So therefore, we do not fear as others would fear because we know as he is, so are we in this world, positionally speaking. So John teaches us that the basis of this love's ability to eradicate the fear of judgment is revealed in its transforming power. We are positionally in Christ as declared and viewed by God. So in verse 19, which is where we begin actually our study tonight, John declares in one verse both the source, because I said we're going to see the source and the reality of this love in one's life. And so we see in verse 19 both of these truths. He says in verse 19, we love him... Because he first loved us. Now again, this isn't just some isolated statement. John is talking about perfect love that casts out fear. Those who do not fear in the day of judgment, it only, can only be possible that we do not fear judgment because we have, love has been perfected in us. And that perfected love, of course, is Christ himself who is all-sufficient. And we know that as he is, so are we in this world. So we have confidence in him. And that is the perfection of this love, providing this confidence and boldness in the day of judgment. And then he makes a statement, we love him because he first loved us. So in this verse, John declares that this love finds its source in God and in his love. In other words, this love which is perfected in our lives is actually God's love demonstrated and bestowed unto us. And so again, we find this to be the crux of the matter. We love God because he first loved us. We who lived in fear of judgment now live in the joy of loving him because he first loved us. Had God not first loved us, then this love not only would not be perfected in us, but such a love would not even be present within us. Hence, we understand both the source and reality of God's love as John declared in this verse. Here's the source of God's love. We love him because he first loved us. God is the source of this love. And the very reality, experientially, of this love is the fact that God has loved us. So this is this perfected love. So it is is in this truth that we have confidence, for it is His love that compels us to love Him. No man will ever love God on his own. It won't happen. So we only love Him because He first has loved us. For it is God's love 
that compels us to love Him and not our love that compels God to love us. But most people there, let me back up, maybe not most, many people today, in fact, probably most in reality, in religious circles, but many, if not most, want there to be a God that responds to their love for Him. So they want to read it as, though, okay, well, God loves us because we first loved Him. But that's exactly contradictory to what Scripture is teaching us. God is not responding to our love for Him. We are responding to God's love for us. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. And hence, let me go back to this truth. That means that my confidence, even in the day of judgment, is not based on my version of some perfected love for God. But my confidence is that I only love Him because He first loved me, and despite my failure to love Him as I should, despite my failure to love Him as I could, despite all of this, I love Him all the same. And the only reason that's true is because He has first loved me. So herein is my confidence. Not again in how I am performing, but in His perfected love. God's love is eternal, and His love is based on His eternal plan and purpose, and it's because of this that we can and do rest in this eternal, unconditional, and indescribable love of God. This love for God is in reality a reciprocation of God's love for us. We love Him only because He first loved us, and so He is loving us, therefore now we are loving Him. And so this is a love that is flowing from Him to Him through us. That's an amazing truth, is it not? By the way, do you really think that God would be pleased with our attempts to love Him, even if man attempted to do so? But the fact is, we love Him because He first loved us, and this is a reciprocation of His love flowing through us back to Him, which is glorifying Him, obviously, because we would never love Him if He did not love us. So this truth stated in verse 19 is the basis for the argument John now makes concerning the presence and manifestation of such love within one's life as evidenced of one's genuine relationship, evidence of one's genuine relationship and fellowship with God. So let's look at verse 20 now in relation to verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. Then he goes on to say, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. So one cannot possess God's love without God's love being manifested to others and specifically to those who are also possessors of God's love. Notice this, if God's the reciprocation, uh, if our love for God is a reciprocation of His love for us, in other words, I only love Him because He loved me, so it's out of His love for me that I now love Him. That's where this love for Him comes from. That's the point. This is the source of the love I have for God. It's His love in me. And therefore, if God loves another as He has loved me, in His Son, Jesus Christ, then how can I not, that love not be reciprocated back to God in a manner that it's now being demonstrated to those whom He also loves? So John is saying, if we claim that we love God, and yet this love is not... Because, let me go back and say this first before I move forward, progress. Love is perfected within those who love their brothers. Remember, we've read that already? So, 
God's love is being perfected in us, or is perfected in us, and it's the evidence of that perfected love is that we don't fear judgment. Did, did we not read that? The evidence of this perfected love is also not only that we do not fear judgment, that we, that we cherish what God cherishes and values what he values. We keep his commandments. We love and, and, and we, we hunger after righteousness. But God's love is also perfected. The evidence of God's love being perfected in one is that he also loved the brethren. So, again, you cannot disconnect. Here's what John is showing us here. You cannot disassociate God's love to us, which results in our love for and to Him. But not only can you not disassociate our love for God from His love for us, because we only love Him because He first loved us, but just as much so you cannot disassociate or separate God's love in you from God's love for others. Because if we claim we love him, let, let's look at, look at the, what John is actually saying here. D- please follow this. We love him because he first loved us. So God is the source of our love, right? And the manifestation of this love is then back to God and also to others. So if I only love God because he loves me, and his love is perfected in me, then that means that this is not my love, it is his love, Therefore, how can I not love those who he loves? How can I love that which he loves? If it's his love being reciprocated back to him that first originated from him. So one cannot possess God's love without God's love being manifested to others, specifically those who are also possessors of God's love, those who know Christ. This is not our love, but God's love reciprocated within us. And that's what's so important. We only love him because he loved us. That's it. So this is teaching us love does not originate within us. It is originating from God and flowing through us back to Him because that's the reason I love Him is because of His love for me. But then that love will also be evident and manifested to those whom He loves. Verse 20 goes on to say, For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So if God has extended his love to us, then surely his love in us will love those he loves. So therefore, if our love for God is the direct result of God's love for us, then how can we not love those who God loves? So the scale by which we weigh our love for God is not dependent upon what we claim, but is weighed upon the scale of the power and transformation of God's love in our lives as his love is manifested to each other. Remember what Jesus said, "...by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples." that ye have love one to another. So Jesus is saying, men are going to know you're my followers because you love one another. He didn't say because you love me, but that's obviously intimated in the text. Yes, we love him because he loved us, but yet that love is manifested in a world of darkness and spiritually, and the world knows that we are truly followers of Christ because our love for God, if it is authentic, is demonstrated by a love which is now present and existent among others who know him. So from John's statement, we understand that one who claims to love God yet demonstrates hatred toward his brother is a liar, meaning that person does not love God at all because they do not possess God's love. Verse 21, And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now this is interesting because this is a commandment, obviously. He states that in the verse. This commandment have we from him. That he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Now, we've already seen, if a man claims to love God and yet does not love his brother, John states what? That he's a liar. 
But then we find a commandment given in verse 21, the commandment referencing back to what Jesus himself said, this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So now we have a command that is also connected to the evidence of a present reality of God's love within us, which is a manifestation of this love to those whom God loves, specifically brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So the evidence is that we do love one another, and then John is reminding us of the command of Christ that we not hinder this love, but that we allow this love to flow through us as God has intended and purpose for it too. So the command is that we openly manifest, demonstrate this love as God has loved us, that this love flows over through our lives unto every relationship, as we've seen in Ephesians so clearly pointed out. Now the commandment of our Lord, to which John refers, actually was a twofold commandment. Matthew 22, 37-39, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that you are to love one another as I have loved you. Remember that? So Jesus says, the same way I've loved you, love one another. When questioned by those who have the religious people of his day, he says, this is the first commandment. What is it? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. But then he says the second is like unto it. And what is the second like unto it? That you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a twofold commandment in a sense. And that goes back to Jesus' commandment to the disciples themselves when he says that you are to love one another even as I have loved you. So the first and foremost is that we love God. But this is somewhat of the point that John is making. You cannot genuinely, authentically love God and not love your brother. It's an impossibility. So now he's saying, do not hinder this love. Love one another as Christ has commanded. We are to love as he has loved us. And so remember, back to Matthew 22, when Jesus makes a statement that this is the first, uh, the great commandment, that you love, one, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. The second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor yourself. In reality, Jesus is summing up the Decalogue. You have the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue, which is not the entirety of God's law, by the way, but a great summarization of God's law. And in the Decalogue, here's what you find. The first commandments deal with our relationship to our Creator, to God. Remember that we are to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind. We are to uh, not to use the Lord's name in vain, which, by the way, just a side note here, using the Lord's name in vain does not simply refer to you using a name for God in your language in an inappropriate manner, though that could be included. It actually is when someone is claiming, as you also find, I believe, in Matthew's Gospel, where many shall say unto me that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? That is using the Lord's name in vain. By the way, how many people are vainly using the Lord's name and claiming this is a work of God when it has nothing to do with God whatsoever? That's vainly using the Lord's name. So this is not really about using inappropriate language, though it could include using God's name in vain in that sense. But this is really talking about what Jesus testifies of saying, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? And he says, what? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. No, you claim you've done this, but it's not in my power. It's not in my authority. So people are vainly using God's name all the time. And so the first commandments of the Decalogue deal with our relationship with God. The second part of the commandments deal with our relationship to man. And so when Jesus says, remember thou shalt not 
covet, thou shalt not take thy neighbor's wife, cattle, so on and so forth. Remember, shalt not bear false witness. This has to do with one another now. And so that second portion of the commandment is of the Decalogue is talking about, the first is talking about love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, and mind. The second is talking about love thy neighbor as thyself. And then Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. As followers of me, you are to love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus declared that those who love him keep, they, that is, they value, that is, they cherish his commands. So if we love God, then we will love others. Specifically, we will love those who also know and possess God's love. As John said, you cannot love God and not love your brother. And how easy it is for someone to claim. See, this is, this is one of these evidences of genuine, authentic relationship and fellowship with God. Anybody can say, I love God. I love him with all my being. Can't they? But John is showing us, oh, anyone can say that? But the proof and evidence of that being a reality in their life is manifested among those in whom God's love exists. And that's why John says, oh, you claim you love God, but you've never seen God. And that's impossible for you to love a God you've never seen while despising your brother, those who also are those who do know the Lord, despising them, the same ones who've received his love. He says it's an impossibility. You cannot hate your brother and love God. You've not seen God, but you've seen one another. And here's what John is saying, as Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one to another. So he's saying, oh, this is, he didn't say, oh, all men are going to know you're my disciples because you love me. That is a given proof or truth already established in, throughout Scripture. But he's saying, by this all men shall know. This is going to be the evidence that men will recognize that you are followers of me because you love one another. And here John is saying again, those who claim they love God and yet do not demonstrate, man, allow that love to be manifested and demonstrate through their lives for one another, they are liars. They do not love God at all. Now, how can this be, or why would John make such a bold, adamant, draw-the-line remark? Well, it's very simple. We've already seen this. The reason John can make such a bold statement is because this is not our love. It is God's love in us. This is the reason. How could we possibly, think of this for a moment, how could we possibly withhold God's love when he has not withheld his love to us or those who know him in redemption? A love that overflows from the very person of the Godhead, how could we possibly withhold that type of love? A love that has transformed our hearts and minds concerning who Jesus is, how could we withhold such a love? a love that is sanctifying us by the grace and power of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. How could we withhold such a love? The point is, you can't. And that's what John is saying. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof. Not this one proof, not this one evidence. This is just one among many of the tests which serve as evidence and proof that we know Again, I will confess to you, it's not that we like everyone. It's not that we like everything about everyone. 
My wife would testify that she loves me. And she would also testify that she doesn't like everything about me. It's true. But it is true that we don't always like everything about even those who we love. That's true. But if you can say you hate, that is a deep-rooted problem. And if you could say in, genuine, in genuineness that you hate a believer in Jesus Christ, especially one who demonstrates the evidence of truly knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can say you hate them, and that's true in your life, that you genuinely hate them, John says, you know nothing of God's love. I don't like everyone. I don't like everything about everyone. I'm, I, I don't. And, and if you're honest, you would confess the same truth, that you, you don't either. But there's a difference in that and hating or not loving. In other words... Love that has been not only expressed and demonstrated us, but this love that has been bestowed upon us, this love that has been deposited within us in the person of Christ, in the presence of God's Spirit dwelling within us. How could any human being possibly? I'm not saying, oh, I can't believe, how can we do that? I'm saying, how is it possible that we could withhold such love? You can't. This is a well springing forth within. And it's going to manifest. It's going to be demonstrated in and through our lives. And we don't all demonstrate love in the same manner all the time, in the exact way. I, we understand that. But love will be present nonetheless. 